Welcome back to DC EKG with Eric Euland and myself, Joe Grogan. We're continu continuing the discussion with Art Kleinschmidt, one of the country's uh, most knowledgeable experts on the addiction crisis, which is affecting the, the country. Art, um, I think we're going to talk somewhat about uh, some of your policy recommendations on how the country as a whole could confront this um, and maybe things that the Biden administration could do better. But before we get to that, let's talk a little bit about what you've been doing since you last left government service and how you think um, people in the community should be fighting this uh, epidemic. Well, recently started uh, a nonprofit uh, organization, Recovery for America Now Foundation. Uh, what we're doing is we're uh, eliciting scholarship monies so people can actually receive addiction treatment. We're working really hard to try to uh, uh, really improve sort of the treatment uh, that's occurring in this country. Uh, we, we're backing pretty heavily. We, we really want to kind of sponsor treatment centers that offer like a full continuum of care. And, with, and explain for a minute what treatment actually entails when somebody presents and, and can be lent a hand here to... to but how treatment actually works? Yeah, right. um, that's okay. a probably a Wait, good what, question. Let's start, Not Eric, a super long one. Yeah, but uh, Eric, let's say, let's say I'm, I'm addicted right now. Yeah. And in full disclosure, I'm on the board of the Recovery uh, for American right, Foundation. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, he's been... A, my pleasure. One of the board directors here, and we're lucky to have him. Yeah. Well, I mean, I wouldn't be doing <laughs> it. You sure are. But yeah. But I like, mean, I, I'd say I've got an addiction problem right now, and I'm like, I need help. And my family members say we're here to help. Who do I call? What do I do? How do I find a place that's going to get me sober and save my life? Um, but do you? Uh, it sort of depends. I'm going to go with a guy who doesn't know anything, no network to to go on. But right. I, usually, I, I would actually start saying. Uh, seek somebody who actually is knowledgeable about the treatment industry. Uh, I, I know there's can be. Uh, I don't. Uh, you really want to kind of pick a reputable place that actually delivers good services. Now you can't always sort of tell all the time, but I, I try to stick more to the uh, ones I, I've heard of and know of when I was working in treatment. But um, I I would say start just kind of looking at the resources and seeing what fits. I, I know that. Uh, SAMHSA, the Substance Abuse Mental Health Service Administration, did have a treatmentfinder.gov. You know, you can kind of look, start there as a particular type of search if you don't know anything. But, uh, you know, I've done interventions for people. Um, I've gone into, you know, houses and helped people uh, find and locate treatment. But I, I would find one that tries to uh, address the unique needs of the individual suffering. So if... if I mean, say they're, they have underlying trauma that's driving their addiction. Is that what you mean? Or they are they on a particular drug? Or what do you mean their particular needs? Why is one addict different than another addict? Well, all people are different. The disease actually has a very similar course of action. Uh, generally, almost all the people that show up in uh, treatment or inpatient treatment uh, will have some other sort of difficulties, like a, some a lot of dual uh, disordered mental health type of complications with it. Now, a lot of that can sort of subside once they stop using or are actually sort of lessened to a certain degree. But what I, I was meaning a little bit more sort of um, a, around what treatment center where the person would actually sort of be comfortable in that actually uh, I don't expect uh, the loved one to be able to do a diagnostic assessment and find out exactly what's sort of going on, but something that would fit uh, sort of their particular sort of characteristics, you know, like uh, if it's going to be an adolescent, make sure you go mm -hmm. into a, a, a type of adolescent uh, 
program or with a female and that sort of a thing is kind of where I don't. But the, the the program that you founded and are running and that you're a board member of, that's what you're supporting. That's what you're pushing. You're making sure that at the end of the day, well, I, I, I want people to kind of complete a full continuum and right. not just go and recycle and go right back home. And that uh, these services are able to cover these both direct needs for right. addiction, but these other indirect. So when, when I, right. So when, when, when I when I say like the. Uh, like a full continuum of care, I really, really hit heavy on the recovery supports of things. And so what I really sort of want to see is a treatment center that actually took the effort to kind of build a recovery community around it. Uh, and and why the, is that? Why is that so important? Well, it's it's very important because a lot of what's going to sort of happen, a lot of what I call the magic actually happens when one of these guys starts working with another guy, another sort of peer community, and you have a lot of support, uh, and you can model other guys who are doing the right thing, who already walked it, can walk the line with you. So, so healthcare professionals, trained professionals like yourself, are really important here. But you're saying critically, it's peer to peer at the end of the day. I'm I'm a huge. I've family. been a been a big peer guy uh, sort of my whole time, and I think that had a lot to do with me getting sober. I I got I'm sober. Sorry. I didn't realize relapse. But I lived, I got sober up in St. Paul, Minnesota. So in, in that area, they have a really strong sort of recovery community in that area. Um, so at a lot of the treatment centers, they have like a lot of uh, sober houses, recovery houses and that uh, around that area. But when I m relocated to Colorado, we had to kind of build a recovery community. You start putting in sober houses, you start working with your sober alumni, getting them sort of involved, letting them stay active. There's a lot of like attraction when somebody sees the one guy who went through it uh, and they can talk to him on like a person to person sort of level. So yeah, as a therapist, and I have done both, but as a therapist yeah I'm, I'm treating a lot of the disorder I'm treating a lot of the mental health complications and that sort of a thing but I also need to get them connected to uh, actually people who are doing the right things and uh, can actually help them get along and part of that is and actually the other thing we're kind of working on is I like to see like a lot of vocational sort of training uh, mm -hmm. and working on like soft skills like how to show up on time how to fill out an application uh, how to go back and uh, follow up on an application and learning a lot of these beginning sort of job skills or a lot of people I was working, you know, treatments that I, I really like. We had like a, a, um, a relationship with some of the local businesses around that could hire our guys and with the like local community college so people could, if they needed a GED, they could work on it. And if they, you know, want to get a couple of college courses, they that would be uh, available to, to them as well. So I really, I call that the back door. So I'm, I'm really strong in the back door, uh, making sure, that, and that's really, when I would have my clients, I would say the rubber hits the road once you leave here, right? So that's really what we kind of, what I really kind of want to see. Uh, and I, I really kind of want to sponsor and help create that sort of a model. And so when you set up the foundation, what problem are you trying to solve? You've got this model where the dollars follow the patient. How does it work otherwise? If, if they don't have a scholarship to go somewhere, I assume some people don't have enough money to go to the, the, well, well, the financial barrier could be sort of huge, right. right? So like even like say with Medicaid or that, they would have a short time period. So it could be like say 20, 21 days or something like that that they would actually get. Uh, so the, the problem that I really kind of want to solve the very expensive part of treatment 
I call it, it's like primary care. So that's where a lot of the diagnostics are kind of going on. You would kind of see that sometimes in your typical 28-day type of program. That's so the, mo- the front end. Yeah, that, that's the most so that's sort of the expense. Model. Yeah, that's, that's actually could be like pretty heavy-duty costs. But so, you want us, you yeah, want, want people I want, to focus on the longitudinal. That yeah, tail, yeah, yeah, that, right, that right. Or years. So, yeah, so some people are going to have to do uh, that, that depending on where they're at. So like with a lot of with the methamphetamine or a lot of sort of the, the trauma, the methamphetamine actually scrambles the brain really well. Uh, so you would see uh, them needing a lot of the sometimes psychotropic medications to straighten that out, uh, at least for a while. So some people are going to have to go through that. But like if they sort of relapse, I like the model. You can kind of keep them in treatment longer and then have uh, for the money you could actually like do the uh, treatment over a longer period of time and then walk them into life where they can have a greater chance for success. Including of, focusing on the soft skills and having those sorts of community and networks of support. Yeah, I'm, in order I'm a big to, advocate to for that. Moments. Yeah. You, you mentioned, I just want to, uh, we haven't talked about meth until you just mentioned it. Is it worth just touching upon this for a second? I mean, you mentioned methamphetamine scrambles the brain. We spoke about fentanyl and, and the legal prescriptions, but do you want to just spend two minutes talking about what uh, is going on with the meth market right now and the uptake of meth? Well, yeah, meth has gotten uh, exceedingly stronger uh, over this time period. It used to be, uh, so there's a, there can be like a regionality to sort of drug use, right? So like I was coming from New Orleans, uh, we, we had the big opioid scene going on. But when I went up to Minnesota to get sober, they were having a little mini meth epidemic out there. And I was up in the, uh, the uh, upper Midwest area and all, all that. They were having a, a meth epidemic. The opioids eventually sort of caught up. But what was going on there, they were making it in labs, right? So they would go rob a farmer, then hydrous ammonia, and they would sit and make up a little makeshift lab to produce methamphetamine. As those got put out, a business, the Mexican cartels were happy to backfill it, and they could actually have a laboratory where they make, like, super-duper strong methamphetamine that's coming across the board. And again, walking across the board. Right. And so meth uh, actually is... uh, uh, like I said, I'm not a neurologist per se. I mean, I, I studied some of that, but it actually has a very devastating uh, effect on the uh, brain. Um, and I mean, like like physically, right? So somebody's uh, so there's producible, measurable br- changes in brain chemistry, how the brain operates. Well, what's going put on it this way: they could stay awake for a week at a time. Yeah. Right. So that's so, already going to create dissociative yeah. fugue, you know, all that. And, sort and of then, stuff. and then you you could have some pretty uh, major hallucinogen, uh, hallucinations, uh, doing meth for a period of time, create a psychotic break. Okay. So a lot of that has to actually, when they would show up at treatment, a heavy duty meth user. Now, when I say meth user, uh, what people don't understand is there's a lot of like poly drugs. So you're going to have uh, when somebody gets into very a severe uh, use disorder, they're they're probably you, when you're doing More an assessment, yeah, you, you'll have probably right. them uh, addicted to like five different substances. isn't isn't uh, unusual. Uh, well, I was going. I mean, we could talk all day and and beyond on on and plumbing your knowledge on the various substances that are, are plaguing people and what's going on with the physiology. But let's let's we don't have too much time, and I just want to talk about where we are now as far as public policy is concerned in this country. I mean, we were at 67,000 when Trump was president. and He declares a public health emergency. It climbs for a couple more years. Then it dips, as you said, 4%. We get hit by the COVID epidemic. We have shutdowns. 
it sort of gets supercharged at that point, and we're at 108,000 uh, opioid deaths, official CDC totals. Um, and anecdotally, I mean, you mentioned y- you've heard it's it's climbing. Uh, I've heard the same. Uh, so the Biden administration is spending a lot of time talking about harm reduction. They're spending a lot of money. They're pushing a lot of money into communities. But what what is different about the Biden approach? And do you think that it's going to turn the tide? It took a while for the Trump administration policies to turn the tide, and then it got blown up by the epidemic. Where where do you think the Biden administration Well, is? one thing that's different about the Biden administration, I've never seen a presidential administration actually fund crack pipes before, right? So I, if I Samson the Substance Use Mental Health Services Administration put out a harm reduction grant, now I've written about this grant, uh, and that's the one that funds crack pipes. They fund paraphernalia for vending machines. Uh, What's the theory behind this? I mean, you would think it, on its face it's incredibly stupid, but why would they pay to fund crack pipes or vending machines for drug paraphernalia? Uh, they have some, uh, that's a really good question to kind of get into their mind, but uh, I give like an honest answer to what I think. But It's always preferable. Right. Uh, well, dishonest I, answers I, I, are I, a different I, podcast. Okay, okay. <laughs> Dishonesty is not allowed. No. Uh, uh, I actually think they're breeding a dependency, right? There's no other, there's no other conclusion I could come to. But they have— What do you co- mean by that? What's going to happen if people are addicted— and they're counting out the government. Well, you you can't if you want to if you let's say you want to destroy American families and break that social network down. Well, one of the best ways to do it is substance abuse, uh, and it, substance abuse does just let me kind of I'll say this, but it doesn't just affect affect the individual that's actually sort of addicted at that moment. It has a huge consequence to the whole family system, the family network. So when somebody is addicted and then they have a dysfunction in their home, unfortunately that dysfunction starts coming down the line uh, genetically or inherited down the line. So when one guy and they have like say children and that, the only thing they know is like the uh, dysfunction that occurs, uh, the only thing they learned is like family dysfunction. So it's very easy for them to suffer neglect, sort of trauma, or anything else that's going on in the home, and that starts coming down the family line. So, so you it have it that multitude. way. Then you have consequences at work. You have consequences right. inside the community. But is there any evidence that supports the thought that part of what's motivating this treatment is this theory that we're going to uh, suborn or destroy the family structure well, here in the United States? Well, yes. Uh, you could probably find a peer-reviewed article on it, but I can tell you as uh, all my years in treatment. That's uh, a simple consequence. That, that's factual, right? That right. this is a yeah. consequence of drug addiction and drug abuse. But if you went to, if if you, I, it doesn't it doesn't take anybody, any conspiracy theory to, to come up with the idea that they are norm, by providing crack pipes and vending machines with paraphernalia, they are normalizing. You can say the same thing with the fentanyl test strips, right? Like putting out the New York uh, City Health Department put out the safe way to use fentanyl. They also had a poster that said you can be empowered by using fentanyl safely. And I'm not making that up. Uh, And like I say, there's no, the truth in that is fentanyl is deadly. It's probably the most dangerous uh, intoxicating chemical that the world has seen so far. So there's no way that somebody can actually use this stuff safely. Now, the, I don't want to get too technical. Now, the DSM-5 changed. The DSM-5 is what? Uh, the latest version of the 
uh, Diagnostic Ma- Statistical Manual of Mental Illnesses, right? Which is like the guidebook that every treater is using when right for all mental illnesses, right? All mental. So, like, but be- before that, the the criteria for addiction, the disease of addiction, was referred to as substance dependence. So that's what I'm saying. When you start enabling and producing, uh, the a lot of the things they're doing. Uh, since they changed the DSM-5, so you don't see this anymore, but the actual criteria, the disease didn't change. They just changed the title. So what what they, uh, so what what I'm saying is they're actually, there's no other conclusion come to than manifesting a dependence, right? You you are actually giving somebody permission to go out there, uh, sort of use crack cocaine, which is extremely addictive. Okay, before we, uh, we're running out of time, but I just want to come back to this one issue. The definition changed in the two manuals from what to what? Uh, okay, the DSM-5. In the DSM, let me tell you. The DSM-4, you had two different addictive disorders. You had substance dependence, which was addiction. And then you had criteria underneath that. Depending on how many they hit, they would be, uh, uh, be diagnosed as substance dependence. Right. Then you had like a temporary disorder, which was substance abuse. Now, that would, the way they had it, that would have been like the college kid who was drinking too much at the fraternity, the young kid who's sort of experimentating. And so that was like it took. That was within like a 12-month time frame. So that type of illness illness would actually sort of clear up as they grow up and mature and that sort of a thing. So what they did in the five is they took those criteria from both those disorders and added it together. They removed the word substance dependence, and that's when they changed it to substance use disorder. Got it. Right? And so that's when – and if you ever see the word severe substance use disorder – that's actually a diagnosis. That's a clinical diagnosis, which, you know, in my opinion, is probably life-threatening. But, yeah, so what they did was they made it like a severe, moderate, and mild. Okay. Uh, I see. I see. All right. So we spent a lot of time talking about policy, but I think at the end of the day, uh, critical to this discussion, we're going to put the numbers up for people that are looking for help who may listen to this podcast and know of a family member or they themselves need some help with their own dependency or addiction uh, crisis that they're facing because as we've discussed several times throughout this conversation, we're at over 100,000 Americans are dying every year. The numbers are climbing and it's a catastrophe regardless of whatever, you know, whatever your political views are, whatever policy prescriptions you would, uh, you would try and uh, prescribe for this, uh, for this uh, disaster. So with that, I wanted to thank Art Kleinschmidt for joining us. And Eric, thank you, of course. Absolutely. And thanks. Well, I appreciate you having me. And Recovery for America Now Foundation, we're having our big fundraiser in October. Dr. Drew Penske is going to be our keynote speaker. So we're very excited about that. Well, good luck. And I really appreciate you all having me on. It's awesome. Thanks for coming. Great conversation. Thank you. Thank you.